Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word, leave us a review share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemarautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. Today's episode is a little unusual. We've stepped away from our normal programming to bring you a focused discussion between David, Ethan, and special guest Maggie Hurt, who runs the relaxed series curated screenings at the BFI in London. Ethan will be curating and hosting two relaxed screenings at the BFI as part of their In Dreams Are Monsters season a showing of Bruce MacDonald's Pontypool on Monday the 31st of October, Halloween, and on Monday the 28th of November, David Cronenberg's The Fly. See our show notes for links to tickets. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, I'm David Hartley, and I'm joined again by uh, Ethan Lyon. Good morning, Ethan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. That's all right. We always we always love to have you here. <laughs> oh, do you flatter me, you flatterer. Um, and today uh, we're joined by a very special guest because we're having a, a slightly more un- or a slightly unusual episode um, today. Uh, we're not going to be focusing specifically on a on a on a particular film like we normally do, but today we're going to be talking to a uh, a special guest uh, and talking about a particular sort of areas so a particular topic around the relationship between autism and cinema and that is the uh, the nature of uh, relaxed screenings and autism friendly screenings and that sort of thing so we have with us today um maggie hurt uh welcome to the podcast maggie i'm going to pass over to you now just to so that you can say a few words about yourself and who you are so welcome maggie thank you very much and thank you for inviting me um, yeah, uh, I'm part of the BFI Southbank programme team, uh, the year-round programme team, not the festival one that's super busy with London Film Festival right now. Um, and my work ranges across curation and project management in different areas, usually across independent cinema spaces, uh, raising profile of underrepresented communities. Um, last year, I curated a season of films around the Hungarian director Martin Mesharos as she approached her 90th year. Um, and earlier this year, I worked on a season of uh, British documentary filmmakers uh, with my colleagues in the archive, just to give you an idea of the range of different things I work on. But the reason that you invited me here is because of the work that I've been doing across the last couple of years, um, developing the Relaxed Screenings Programme at BFI Southbank, which has been a very exciting journey that I have learned a lot on um, and met some very interesting people like Ethan, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan's bowing his head and looks very uh, humble right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I do badly. I do badly with compliments. What can I say? Oh. No, but it's, it's very flattering. It's very flattering, and I have 
thoroughly enjoyed uh, all the work I have done for the Relax Screening uh, series so far, which is also one of the reasons uh, why we have this little extra podcast, because I am hosting mm -hmm. two screenings uh, for the In Dreams and Monsters series that is running at the BFI from uh, October till uh, late November, early December. Uh, one on the 30th of, uh, sorry, one on the 31st of October, so Halloween night itself. Nice. And that's going to be Pontypool, uh, the, the spookiest day of the year. So I'll be talking about Pontypool, which is one of my favourite horror films. And then on the 28th of November, I will be talking about uh, Cronenberg's The Fly. Uh, so it's going to be a very, very interesting duo of films presented in a relaxed way. There's going to be a little introduction by me beforehand, wearing a suit. Uh, uh, my mother would never forgive me if I didn't wear a suit and looked professional for these, for these events. And honestly, she has a point. Um, and uh, and then there's going to be a sort of an informal discussion afterwards, chaired by myself. Um, yeah, tickets are available at the BFI, but we'll give more details about that later. Uh, sorry, I had to wedge in the self promotion there. That's all right. That, that's exactly why we're here, and that you know that's <clears> the reason why we've we've put this episode together. We thought that that was uh, things are fortuitously timed so that we can. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about um, the relaxed series at the BFI, but also sort of the nature of, of um, uh, autistic audiences at cinemas and autistic involvement, I guess, with with programming and with curation and with um, with the BFI and, and so on. I, I think it's just an interesting topic that I feel I felt that um, would be a nice thing to address on on the podcast, which is why we've invited you along. Maggie. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for that. It's very exciting to hear that you're uh, going to be curating episodes. It's also worth saying as well that our other host, Lillian, has just recently curated a screening, um, which I think happened, did that happen last week? That um, happened uh, at the end of uh, September. Um, yeah. And she um, introduced and hosted a discussion on Le Paraplee de Cherbourg, um, which I discovered was one of her favourite films. So Yes. It's, oh, that's it's... lovely. Did, were you at were you at that event? Did it go well? I was, I was, um, and uh, she gave a lovely introduction, just setting the scene because I mm. think some people were seeing it for the first time, um, and others were seeing it for uh, repeated times. It's one of those films that that can get you in that way, and um, mm. reviewing is always a, a pleasure. And uh, she hosted a discussion afterwards, which took up lots of threads of interpretation um, across. Uh, neurodiverse interpretations of the uh, of the program, but also ranging right across French cinema um, in lots of different ways. Fabulous! Well, uh, the Autism Through Cinema podcast is really representing down at the BFI at the moment, which is really great. That's really lovely to hear, and uh, thank you for that. So, um, Maggie, um, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about um, how did how did the Relax series come about. Um, and also, like, kind of what 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 surprising things have you seen from this from this series, and what benefits have you seen coming out of the uh, of the Relax series? Um, well, the screening started publicly in January twenty nineteen, um, and that was with a relaxed weekday matinee screening of Stan and Ollie, the uh, the comedy oh, yeah. drama with Steve Coogan as Stan Laurel. Yeah. Um, that was just as it was released. And um, for various reasons, we thought that was a nice 
start to um, this series. And at that point, it was the start of a journey that we had a little bit of a roadmap, but we certainly didn't have a detailed roadmap. It was all very much in pencil, shall we put it that way? The discussion around starting more accessible programming in general had been bubbling around for a while, um, but it actually became concrete. You made me think about actually this journey in a way mm. by um, by inviting me here. It, it, it was during one of the first um, inclusion and diversity um, days run by the Independent Cinema Office, um, and that's a series that they do regularly now, the ICO, um, and it was, I think it might even have been the first one, but in 2018, and there was a, a discussion, and there were people from Oscar Bright Festival, and there were people from um, Glasgow Film Theatre who had been producing a number of relaxed screenings uh, over a period of time. They were on their journey. And there was a team of us attending from BFI South Bank um, when Gaylene Gould was uh, head of cinemas uh, at that mm-hmm. point. And the conversation in the auditorium was all about independent exhibitors sort of starting to think about doing this and, and taking the step and going towards it. Um, and I found myself listening to Gaylene saying, well, we are actually going to do it at BFI. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to start. And somehow or another, I was the person who was catching that ball. Um, <laughs> and it was both very exciting and very challenging. And um, I recognized at that point what a lot there was to learn mm-hmm. if we were to have a positive journey one that was going to um, be beneficial to the range of audiences that we wanted to uh, attract, um, as well as for BFI in itself. So um, that's sort of where my involvement in this space began, I suppose. There had been a few months previously a situation at South Bank which had revealed that BFI had gaps in understanding about welcoming people from the autistic community, and we were super conscious of that at the time. And along with the, uh, the the zeitgeist of the time conversations uh, in the wider world, this sort of brought together that things what well, we we need to start this journey. We need to um, own, if you like, mistakes, uh, learn from them, and move on and open up conversations. So um, that's what we did. As an organisation, we'd got some learnings in different parts, but must say probably not such a lot um and at that point jen smith was our head of inclusion and she was hugely supportive in uh for myself and my colleagues in actually opening doors for conversations um and looking behind the learnings of different places uh towards what would be good for bfi south bank because mm. doing something in one space and doing something in another The spaces are different, the communities are different, the expectations are different. So I was conscious of not wanting to pick up a model from somewhere else and just Mm. plant it in the South Bank space. Wanted to really explore what would be beneficial being BFI, National Cinematheque, all that that means in terms of art house cinema, um and also actually being a community cinema there we are down on the south bank coin streets you know there are people who live around us um we're not in isolation so i suppose what i did in the first instance um and i was not alone in this because jen was very supportive um in different areas was to have lots of conversations with people Mm. about expectations experiences good and bad Mm. um organizational 
individual and try and weave them together. Um, I spoke a lot with uh, Toki Allinson, who was working at Film Hub Wales at the time as their um, inclusive cinema project guru. Um, and she was super generous with her time and experience and introductions um, and really made concrete that thing that uh, developing a relaxed screenings program anywhere mm. um, is not a one size fits all thing. Right. Yeah. It's um, it's a thing that you if you're doing it from the perspective of an art house cinema, then you know that that's part of your audience base already. So putting in lots of mainstream films probably isn't quite sitting there with the audience that you're already reaching out to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I suppose the mantra that, 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 that I was going with at that particular point was sort of doing the thing that's right for our audiences, um, our audiences, um, starting to recognize that audience because there would already be, there was already a number of people who were attending um, standard screenings um, who were autistic, who came from the community of neurodiverse creatives or practitioners um, in all sorts of ways. And just learning from them um, within that context and recognizing both the differences and similarities across the community that attend any relaxed screening. So we don't think that all people who attend a particular season all come from the same headspace in terms yeah. of how they would appreciate something. So why should we think that all people who might want to attend a relaxed screening um, uh, come from that same space? They have similarities, but they have different um, uh, different sensibilities, different things that they're looking for. So um, the offer should be distinctive but not a silo. Um, yeah. It should mesh across um, our audience offer. And uh, there are benefits to everybody for making adjustments in any screening space. Um, and I think that's a particular learning that we've um, perhaps been surprised by mm. is, is a little bit over the top but it's actually it's a real learning and it is something that we're trying to embed um across our offer in different ways um there's an anecdote as i've picked up along along the journey about you've met one autistic person and you've met one autistic person yeah um, yeah that is very true can confirm <laughs> uh so i'm very keen for for screenings to be a, an integrated part of bfi programming yeah. um that they're not just an add-on they're a part of what we offer and different parts of of the wide bfi audience community will come to different things so the conversation with ethan coming out of that ethan also hosted last january That's correct. our relaxed screening and discussion around uh, l'enfant sauvage which came out of uh, the connection between the wider queen mary project um and our screenings um and discovering there that his particular interest in horror gothic cinema the autistic sensibility i mean it was a natural conversation to talk with him about in dreams and monsters nice 
So I just the uh, follow up question to that. Uh, was it always the case that um, you had this sort of structure of of getting autistic people to do the curation of what was, or, or how did that come about? Because I, I imagine that wasn't there initially, but then maybe that that was sort of built in later on. That that's part of the learning journey. Yeah, I mean, we started as as I said with a, a screening of Stan and Ollie because mm. we were doing a run of that particular film. We started, if you like, in a soft spot, as in a matinee afternoon mm. screening and it was exploratory but what we did right from the very beginning is ask for feedback right um, and we had cards and people and email address all different ways in which people might be able to communicate with us about their their experience and their learning um as an audience member the first one or even the first two we offered as free screenings to try and encourage a, the wider uh, group of people to attend and from there, we were really exploring how we could go forward in curating the space. Mm. So we worked with what we had initially within our program to start with. And the first half dozen or so were very much from that space. But we were also wanting to, um, to work with people from the communities and mm. not have it as... Um, I realise I talk with my hands, so you can't see this podcast. <laughs> Not putting things on top, but actually growing things up. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was the space that we were looking to f open the right doors in because we didn't have the network that initially allowed us to do that with ease. Yeah, of course. But our first real um, solid partnership in that space came through my colleague Will Fowler, who's a curator at the um, National Film Archive, who I connected with in one of his experimental programmes, which is a monthly strand he runs across the year at BFI South Bank. Uh, and he and I discussed um, a few options and came up with screening Jigsaw um by rubina rose which i know later was um was part of the um autism through cinema barbican screening experience um with i think also rubina as well yeah, but that's Will right. yeah brought her on board and she brought along a guest who uh, contributed to the um the conversation and the screening uh, and and really explored. I mean, uh, Jigsaw, for those who don't know it, uh, is an observational and, and very experimental film, um, but looking at um, the obsessions or preoccupations of autistic children, and it's it's a it's a playground space in a certain sense. And it's from the early eighties, nineteen eighty, I think, mm -hmm. and so it shows a sensibility at that time in those environments looking at it from an experimental point of view but actually working within the community because she brought people along from um from that space and having that dialogue and we had a a discussion informal discussion space afterwards which we started from the beginning but this was the first time that it actually had been really um energized because we had creatives who had come because of the experimenta strand of programming and we had those people who were autistic or were allies of the autistic community by 
um, friendship, family, work, whatever, mm. coming together in the same space. And what a lot of synergy there was and what a lot of excited conversation there was mm. and what a lot of ideas came out of that space. Mm. And a, soon after that, we were introduced by Jen Smith to Stevie Lee, who yeah. is the producer of The Reason I Jump. Mm-hmm. She uh, is neurodiverse herself and her son, Joss, is one of the subjects of The Reason I Jump, the film. Yeah. Um, and she was very much giving us feedback, um, really supported me on my journey to um, understanding and giving me positive and negative stuff about what was happening and learning and opening my eyes just to, to the conversations that I'd missed because mm. you sometimes you just don't know where you're looking. And in that space, we started to develop the network where we could be talking with people who might curate for us. So it took, if you like, sort of the first year thereabouts where we were mainly emphasizing looking at the space and our behavior as an organization, what we would, how we were training, how we were signposting. And that's another diversion, if you like. But through those two particular scenarios, that, from my point of view, is where the door opened up into the dialogue about working with the community. Mm. Because working with anybody in any scenario is a matter of trust. Yeah. Um, However, that relationship, whether it's a monetized relationship or whether it isn't, you work with someone in a situation of trust. And we have to work on that before we could take the next step i think we couldn't just parachute ourselves into that situation yeah and it was really good to see and i know that one of our other former guests on the on the podcast benjamin brown has been um has done a, a bit of curation with you as well i, I mm-hmm. know that, that that happened fairly recently um ethan i wanted mm-hmm. to bring you in here um yeah you mentioned at the, the top of the recording about um the the two films that you have uh, selected for your season uh, of the relaxed series mm. Yeah, I wondered if you want to just say a little bit more about why you've made those choices and the, and your experiences really of, of doing this curation yourself. Sure. Uh, well, first off, this has been... I, I could go into the usual uh, young promoter spiel of this is such a great opportunity, but it is. <laughs> in all seriousness, it is not just because of the potential for stuff in the future, but just because I've had the chance to choose the films, write the material for it. And I, I won't say that it's entirely been all my work because I've uh, obviously I've, I've worked in with in, in tandem with Maggie and I've had a very wonderful working relationship with her on that front. But it's been an opportunity for me to um, direct the sort of move the conversation in a, in a, in a, in a direction that I would be interested in, in a direction that I feel uh, should be talked about more. Maggie very accurately pointed out that uh, the experimenter yielded a lot of sort of crossover, and certainly there's a lot of autistic people and neurodivergent people that we know who like experimental film for largely for the ways that it issues sort of traditional narrative cliches. But there's equally a great number of autistic people who love horror. Uh, I wrote an article for um, another podcast website called Evolution of Horror which is an excellent uh, series of episodes uh, a few years ago. 
um, about my connection with autism and horror. And the thing which uh, came up in particular was the comments of autistic people going, yeah, uh, thank you for saying all this. This makes lots of sense as an autistic person. I've always felt this way. And this explains why horror means so much to me. So I think that's a really important conversation to have. And it's a conversation I want to have with those who come to the screenings. Mm. So the two films, it also actually ties into the autism as well, because these are films which, especially the first one, Pontypool, uh, connects with me largely because of my autism and because it tunes me into, no pun intended, Pontypool is about a radio host, <laughs> various elements of my own experience of autism and sort of sensory stimuli and sensory overload. For those who don't know, the basis of Pontypool is it's a zombie film set in Canada and it concerns a radio host who becomes like the epicenter of this zombie outbreak but it's not an infection in the same way that something like 28 days later or dawn of the dead is rather it's about people become stuck on words and repeat them ad nauseum to the point where they can't say anything else and they lose any sense of sanity and go on destructive rampages while shouting very bizarre words it's at once both weirdly comic and truly terrifying. It's one of my favourite uh, films. I think it's in my top 50 of all time. Uh, and I think it's because that slant on repetition and um, obsession with singular words or noises that is a, a, a real part of autistic life, sort of the, the verbal stimming, if you wish, uh, that I found very, that I found it, it presented something of a visual, if not parallel, then certainly a visual rendering of what it can feel like to be stuck by words and to be stuck in situations where you can only speak certain words. Um, it's, it's a very strange film. I feel I use that term a lot because <laughs> I, 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 I often... I, I sometimes find my response to certain films is so emotive that it's hard to communicate it in words, but it's a film that I think has a lot of relevance to autism and I feel very, very deeply about. The second one was Cronenberg's The Fly, which is a bit more of an obtuse one, but it kind of makes sense for two reasons, because it's something that we've discussed on the podcast as well a, a, a couple of times. We, we, we've, we've talked about autistic aesthetics and I think Pontypool it's very interesting that aspect. We've also loosely talked about autistic directors. Um, mm. As as this episode goes out, uh, you may be aware that one of the more recent episodes we've put up is for Scanners, yeah. which is also by the maestro himself, David Cronenberg, who's also one of my favourite directors. And Cronenberg is a director who, having read a lot about him, read interviews with him, I am of the opinion that he is on the spectrum, mm. but I'm aware that's a very... <clears throat> there are dangers in assigning him there but certainly his worldview and the detachment that he demonstrates towards emotional responses to stimuli and his interest in speculative elements of existence and evolution i find to have certain rings to my own experience and my own interests and the fly well, The Fly itself, the original film I am a fan of, the 58 Kurt Neumann, uh, which I originally was considering to write about in my thesis, um, 
it's a film about bodily transformation and it's a film about when the body and the concept of sensation your own sensory universe has expanded almost to the point of changing your personality because you are suddenly getting inputs that are no longer your own mm. and there's a discussion there i think about hypersensitivity uh, and the idea of the body being both terrifying and fascinating and your own body being that way and it being subjected to a, a clinical sort of a medical uh scrutiny that that, that fascinates me uh one of the things i write about in my thesis is the idea of autism being pathologized mm. being boiled down to a series of symptoms often by an outside perspective looking in at the autism and one of the sections in my work is about how is when uh, the the scientist becomes the monster so films like the invisible man and the fly and the Cronenberg, The Fly, with its superb Jeff Goldblum performance, is one of the most interesting depictions of that, of a man who is conscious that he is changing, has no way of stopping it, and is trying to deal with his own sense of self in the process. It's incredibly moving, incredibly sad film, but also a very beautiful film in its depictions of transformation. Mm. Yeah, beautiful is an interesting word to, to choose um, for the transformation of Krona, of um, Jeff Goldblum into into Brundle Fly. Um, but yeah, what a what an incredible film, and I think you'll yes. have some really interesting and really rich conversations. Actually, well, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to seeing what the people bring to the table for these discussions. Um, from what I've seen and what I imagine these relaxed screenings have a certain inbuilt audience who appear again and again from the feedback that's been given. And I'm going to be very, very interested to see what people, especially those on the spectrum, not to say those who are allies or uh, outside viewers, won't have very interesting things to say, but I'm interested to see what those who have lived the experience of being autistic feel about the film and feel about Mm. the shall we say the discussion prompts that i'm going to set out for them so it's going to be very very interesting in that respect we're, we're certainly looking forward to it ethan i, I must say That's that very kind um, of you know when we had the conversation around the menu of films that were on mm. offer because the selections are taken from uh the wide program that runs um as ethan said across post lff up until just before christmas at bfi south bank um when I shared with my colleagues the uh, the ideas that were on the table, and then later these were spread out in the cross marketing um, spaces, <laughs> and they said the fly was often a sort of hmm, are you sure? And I said I've been talking with someone who has got some interesting perspectives on this, and I know you will have Ethan. We've we've touched on them in our conversations, but I know your research in there will will be a really energized discussion because i think the passion for cronenberg's cinema from all sorts of different spaces will be one of the catalysts for, for that and then taking this particular angle i think it's uh, i think it's a very appropriate choice as well considering that he returned to our oh, yeah. to the big screen experience this year with crimes of the future his his brand new film which is a fantastic, fantastic film. If anyone who is listening has not seen it, I strongly urge them to. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of speculative science fiction about disability and about pain. 
yes, it's a film which means a very great deal to me, as does as does a lot of Cronenberg's uh, filmography. It's a very, very personal uh, love of his work for me. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, we found that a little bit with this, <clears throat> with, that, with this podcast as well, where we sort of like selecting certain films that maybe um, when we put them out, people are like, oh, this is surprising. I wouldn't have thought that this would have been mm. something that we wanted to talk about in relation to autism. But then we, then you start to dig into it, and you know, th- themes and ideas come come through from from these particular films. Mm. And I think it is something to do with not necessarily, it's not necessarily choosing films that have got some sort of autistic connection, but more putting certain films in front of autistic audiences and, and then gauging what that reaction is from that point. And that's the nature of autistic or neurodivergent audiences is that. They will they will naturally see something unusual or different or connect with something in particular that perhaps has not been previously thought of by by other audiences, and that's what's really interesting about this whole this whole project. Really, I, I did wonder actually that Ethan has just just mentioned: Are we getting a sense from this relaxed series that there is a kind of repeat audience, that there is a kind of community building in these audiences? Does that does that seem to be the case? Yes, yes, there is. I mean. Um as you've alluded to where the, the partnership element uh, of development is now very strong and is absolutely key to how we work so benjamin brown who is citizen autistic mm. uh, and who i met pre-pandemic time and started conversations with him about his club which was an in-person space at that point um running out of deptford he was strong and focused in keeping that community together during the pandemic online, which was something that I was personally really impressed with how that worked because of all the different isolations that we experienced during the, the 2020 period that brought us all, kept us all in our houses and away from cinemas and that shared experience, but he kept that community together. So he and Stevie had met, Stevie Lee had met each other just immediately. In fact, the meeting with them was my last in-person meeting before lockdown, curiously. Mm. Um, (laughs) And uh, we were discussing at that point, not knowing what was around the corner, how he might work with us on some focus for the release at that point in about six months' time for the reason I jump. And we were exploring those spaces about whether you take, um, how you explore those things the best to bring in different audiences. So it was natural to go back to him when we were opening up again um, to look at uh, how he might work with his community and with BFI um, and help us restart a relaxed screening program again because the reason I jump came out very soon after cinemas were able to open up again. And many cinemas for perfectly um, good logistical reasons were super hesitant to start relaxed screenings from the beginning with all the anxieties right across the board. But we were screening the reason I jump. I was very pleased about this as an extended run, multiple screenings across the organisation for two weeks. And um, the conversations were, well, we can't have this film screening without offering opportunities for relaxed screenings. That that is is just... That kind of defeats the purpose of the film, I would argue. Exactly. 
we can't we just can't do that we were already super spaced the you know the relaxed screening um space and the post-pandemic um screening density of audiences um you know very similar lots of spaced out lots of lots of um uh controlled going in and going out there was a whole load of things which felt like that they were going to be working well so we started right from the very beginning on putting on relaxed screenings and Benjamin was part of those conversations and he ensured that his community was aware of that and I believe also worked with um, the film's um, uh, distributors, Picture House and Stevie in actually amplifying that message across um, uh, the community that he'd been developing but the wider autistic community as well. So immediately following that, we were think, then thinking, how are we going to start again in a way that shows some learning out of all of this period, consolidating what we'd learned during the 2019, early 2020 period. Um, so he agreed to curate uh, a series for us and he brought the outreach from this community. And then, um, so they have become part of the, um, the, the outreach space, um, many of the people part of that are coming along regularly. Mm. We've also reached out, um, as you both know, and had conversations with um, the wider Autism Through Cinema project at Queen Mary. Um, so across the, the teaching module space, as well as the production space, as well as this podcast space, which enabled us to do two screenings January and February of this year um one with Ethan and one with Sam Ahern oh yeah yeah and then we were we extended our conversations which were previously um stopped because of the pandemic with Project Artworks um and brought back in there so trying to build the dialogue and also with Oscar Bright mm. building in certain parts of communities of having had experiences with us and worked through the actual screenings to try and create a network across many different sens sensibilities because certain people who will want to come to horror uh, will not have been interested in coming to Umbrellas of Sherbrooke, for example. Yeah. Um, but that's true of any audience it's not unique to this particular audience so having multiple partnership strands in conversation it's baby steps you don't suddenly achieve capacity houses but you get a familiarization because people come in with certain for certain experiences and they keep on the radar so we hope that that is uh, the way forward because I'm talking about organizations in a certain sense, but organizations actually are people. I work with people rather than organizations. They just happen to have those labels on, if you like. Yeah. Um, so talking with Ethan, talking with Lillian, who also uh, hosted Petit Maman for us oh. back a while ago, um, but remotely because she was not in London at that time. Just bringing those individual conversations back again is definitely part of, of that space. The people who attend discussions, there's a core group who are frequently there. And then there are the people who um, are particularly associated with that subject or thing. Hmm. And then there are people who um, are interested to explore that angle. And that's, I think, I hope, 
my aspiration for part of what happens with your your program, Ethan, is that there are people who will be interested in the umbrella space of In Dreams of Monsters who will say, I hadn't thought about considering those films from an autistic perspective, from that point of view. Let me see. And that, I think, is what happened with Truffaut, is that there were people who, there were, there were the Truffaut lovers who came for curiosity to see what was going to be discussed in that space. Though there's a, um, a narrative thread in there, it's not the only reason that you would go to see that. No, of course. Mm. I am also hoping that's the case, that, that there is this sort of reappraisal, shall we say, or certainly uh, a, a, by some, a new way of looking at these films in terms of autism. And if it perhaps, especially for those who are not autistic themselves, if it perhaps inspires a sense of understanding, empathy towards what it feels like to be autistic, then my work is done because that's always been my interest and that's the interest of my academic writing is trying to communicate what it feels like to people who may not have that first-hand knowledge. And for those with that first-hand knowledge, for them to feel like, yeah, it is legitimate, it is a real thing, it's not just all in my head, so to speak. So I think that is something I'm really looking forward to getting out of those conversations as well. Nice. Um, yeah, this is all very, really, really interesting. And, it, and, and we, we've already sort of touched upon um, and as you said, Maggie, in, in your first, uh, in the first bit of the recording, you're talking about um, how the relaxed screenings are not necessarily a one size fits all, and that there's, you know, for, uh, an awful lot of variety amongst autistic and other neurodivergent people, and that, 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 that these things don't necessarily fit together very easily, and and that has something that has to be constantly considered. There is a, a a book that I always think about when I um whenever I'm sort of thinking about relaxed screenings. There's a book called Uncomfortable Labels by a, a writer called Laura Kate Dale, who's a, a journalist and I think primarily actually a, a video games journalist more than anything else. But um, she talks a little bit in this in this book about um. Uh, well, is in some ways a little bit critical of so-called so relaxed screenings and autism-friendly screenings. Not like wholly. She said she sort of says that she understands why they exist and it's very good that they exist, but does talk a lot a lot about the similar things that we were talking about earlier on. She says, "I don't attend autism-friendly screenings because autism is a spectrum, and the one-size-fits-all approach of autism screenings is tailored to one type of individual with autism over another." Now she's writing this. Uh, this this came out, I think. 2000 and oh well 2019 so not too long ago actually and she sort of goes into a bit more detail about the sort of things that that she particularly finds difficult so she mentions um things like the uh the green exit fire exit signs above doors and how bright they can be and distracting from the screen itself um and how she that there's there's been some screens that she's gone to where they are dimmed and that makes things better for her um things like a lower level of sound on the screenings themselves but then she also notes that um i thought this was quite interesting she says a lot of additional factors that are introduced by the nature of an autism friendly screening that are definitely not to my benefit most notably the presence of other autistic individuals and uh, so sort of saying that like when the sound for example might be lowered and there's kind of like dimmer lighting or mood lighting for the for the screening 
it sometimes can make her more aware of other people in the audience. And if all those other people in the audience are, you know, fidgeting or getting up or, or making noises, those then can be distractions. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, I, I think that when maybe when relaxed screenings, autism friendly screenings sort of first started to come in into cinemas, it perhaps felt like quite an easy thing to do. You just have a slightly, you know, the lights on a little bit, the sound down a little bit and everyone's fine. And actually it's not, there's so many little minutiae and so many little bits of complications in, in amongst all of that, that, that make it for quite a complicated experience. And anyway, I just wondered if you had any thoughts or any more thoughts on that, Maggie or Ethan, um, about how to sort of, if you've, if you've faced any challenges like that and if, uh, how to handle sort of the, the complicated elements of the relaxed screenings. It's a big subject, isn't yeah, it? In there, and, and the sense that it isn't one size fits all. And when we get feedback from people, that feedback in itself can be contradictory. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly had that in the early stages um, where we were doing um, afternoon screenings, for example, which isn't exactly what Kate's indicating uh, from what you're saying there, but it's something that particularly sits in my mind about that space is that we were offering um, midweek matinees mm. um, for various practical reasons um, on our side associated with runs of new films because distributors with new films would wrap that into their screening agreement with you and, and it would be um, a smooth administrative space to work with. And we had people being very pleased that we were offering afternoon screenings and saying that was good because then they could come out with their support worker. Yeah. They could come out in the daylight, mm. various positive things from their point of view about being in the afternoon. And we were having exactly opposite responses from other people saying, I can't get to afternoon screenings because I work. Mm. I don't have a support worker. Therefore I'm coming with friends or with family. If I'm, if I'm coming um, accompanied, and they are working. So that puts me into that disadvantaged space. So if we listen to both sides of that argument, um, you know, you're, you're left with the dilemma in the middle. Yeah. And that was a very particular space um, that you will have noticed that we've actually gone to making the evening screenings our focus space, because we felt that that benefited more audience more of the time yeah. and was actually a better way of integrating within our wider um, uh, program offer. And I think that wider integration and actually looking at how we present more accessible screening opportunities, giving that the bigger umbrella, is where we're going um, mm. at the moment in terms of there are many, there are various adjustments which we may have made for relaxed screenings which actually benefit everybody or lots of people. Um, they're not exclusive to that community. Having a little bit more light sometimes um, can be beneficial to a wider range of, of, of people. Uh, for example, we've looked at the wider range of offer across our building so that we're looking at signposting, yeah. environment uh, for restrooms, coffee, bar experiences, etc. These are things that we've learned as an organization that will benefit any audience. Yeah. So that is that sort of whole demographic positive benefit that we're going in there. 
when you're talking about um I don't know that we've dimmed our exit lights, actually. It's a very good point. I made a note. I'm going to have a look because <laughs> we, we do. Because yeah. I, I don't remember that. I remember them being quite bright. But then again, uh, it was eight months ago that I was there for Enfant Sauvage. So it is quite uh, I can certainly see actually why that might be distracting for some uh, in terms of, sort of like it's the brightest light in the room and your eyes just constantly follow mm. it, which is complicated i'm sorry i interrupted you please continue no no it's 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 something that we've had we it's how i say we're always learning because mm. um mm. we've we've looked at all sorts of minutiae but i can't remember personally ever looking at this side and our technical team have gone through various things i'm going to go back and we're going to have a look at that in my experience there has been some movement within the auditorium which may have been distracting to some other people but actually, overall, mm. not that much. Um, not in the screenings that, and I've been in every screening that that uh, every every screening that I've hosted, I've actually been within the auditorium for yeah. to actually see what was happening. And um, my knowledge of certain people who attend regularly is that those who want to be uh, as uninterrupted as possible will sit towards the front. Right. And those people who feel that they may want to be moving around and use the opportunity to use the quiet space and may need to just stand up and walk and do the things that they might need, they they go towards the back. Now, I'm not saying that that will always be the case in all, in all spaces, but I've sort of found it self-regulating in a certain space. Yes. I'd also like to say at this point, in relation to the screening, because both of the screenings for that I'll be doing are taking place of NFT3. Of the screenings, of the screening rooms, in terms of that sort of silence and the ability to choose where you sit, apart from perhaps some small concerns around sort of tiered seating and possible accessibility, I think it's the best place to be mm. in terms of it is the most quiet, uh, it is the, the distance from the front seats to the to the uh, to the doors that you enter is fairly large. The auditorium area itself there is fairly small. It seems to be a very appropriate place to screen it. And also, I appreciate the fact that there's such a huge distance from like the screen that you the screen to you the audience and it's all on a single level so you can stretch your legs out and you're not feeling the surge to crane your neck up mm. to see the, the above a stage which is sometimes i have certainly felt when i've been to see films in nft1 and nft2 i have very interesting memories of seeing napoleon the the abel Gans film uh in um and having to crane my neck up for seven hours that was not a fun experience although the film itself was 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 magnificent i i think i think laura has laura has touched on some which i think is an important point to remember which is that yeah uh, as maggie was saying earlier if you've met one autistic person you've met one autistic person and the way in which people's various needs do come into play is always going to be different. There's yeah. always that there are there are some wherein you can perhaps identify common experiences, such as an aversion to loud noise. And yet I know a number of autistic people who thrive on loud noise mm. and people 
in the same space and that's very comforting for them i'm not one of them <laughs> but I, I i know of them and i think if i was to to put forward what i where i'd like to see the the relax screenings go further is hopefully there is enough popularity and enough impetus to have screenings that either some occur in the afternoon and some occur in the evening perhaps for the same film or various light levels i'm aware at the same time however that i'm saying this as a member of the public and not somebody who's directly involved in them the the the, the process of making a program which is a very complicated situation which i've only been slightly privy to with my sort of conversations with maggie but yeah it's 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 a situation where the aim should always be to try and cast the widest net possible to get mm -hmm. uh autistic people in which is i must admit i do entirely see laura's perspective on this one i i can entirely understand that that sort of urge but at the same time there is always going to be outliers yeah. and some part of that will be people adapting themselves to the situation and that is and that is in itself i won't say a good thing but certainly a thing that happens and certainly i do that in certain situations so it's it's a complicated one, as, as Maggie said. It's very complicated. It is. It is complicated, and uh, and, and all these things will always always will be. Um, it's just an interesting conversation to have, and it's also an interesting journey to go on in terms of figuring those elements out. And I, I it was interesting actually hear, to hear you say, Maggie, about this kind of like self regulating audience. And I suppose that's what you're going to get once you've got a bit of a community building. If you've got a fairly regular group of people who are coming quite often then they all get to know each other's kinds of needs and and then when you've got a community who are together to do this to, to watch these films together they can be self-supporting so it's interesting that that sort of perhaps is one of the one of the not answers but certainly no. one of the ways that sort of tactics no. i guess is to build this kind of community of of like-minded people who can help each other yeah and also i should say at this point uh, if it sounds like I've just been a bit critical in that last comment, <laughs> I should also say the fact that there is this community that has been established through these repeated relaxed screenings is a testament to the really excellent, high-quality atmosphere and apparatus that has been put in place by Maggie and the relaxed screening team, uh, which I can't praise enough in terms of going out of their way to make sure that this is part of the system uh, and to make sure that autistic people are not being left behind by this, the, 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 the film experience, which I know can happen. And certainly I have felt in places in the past, and I know friends of mine have felt the same way. So I must, uh, I must acknowledge, I think it's only fair that I acknowledge that to be a, a, a success in itself. And my hope is, is that it can only grow and become more, even more integral to the, uh, the various seasons as it is at the moment with In Dreams and Monsters. Thank you very much, Ethan. That's very generous of you. I mean, we, we are, um, it's that integration side that, that to me is, is a core um, and that this isn't a bolt on, it is uh, a sense of space. It's things like familiarising time when you're going into a new space, mm. everybody will have a level of anxiety or 
series of questions or something about when they're going to introduce into a public space, whether it's in an auditorium or around a boardroom or whatever. And there are very few people who would say they go into that without some level of, of sort of questions that come up for them. Actually building in a time where the people who we invite, like Ethan and, and colleagues, are given that space to go into a new space for them, to stand at that point where they will be standing to give that presentation, to walk into the room that they'll be hosting the discussion in af uh, afterwards, and just to feel that space and to get your geography and to see where the doors are and to see where everything is, as opposed to sort of do it in the hurly-burly of, of, of people around and watching the time and making sure that you, you hit a certain sort of schedule reasonably, um, then those sorts of things are beneficial to anybody who's taking part in these situations. And actually working for this relaxed screening series has just made me recognise all of those things that happen right across the board in all of all of our presentations, having headed up our um, events programme in a different angle in the past, it is very much a process of hitting the, the, the rhythm, hitting the, the, the timing of doing something, keeping to time, measuring, making sure you can be heard, all of those things. We all need to take that on board in how we present. So I try to share this learning with other of my colleagues around that it's beneficial to all in the end mm. and they are actually quite small adjustments in the big scale of things which can make a huge difference so it's steps along the way absolutely yeah, absolutely um i talking of time keeping to time uh we are sort of turning ourselves towards uh, uh the an hour's worth of recording now so let's just uh round things off just with a couple of final um thoughts i suppose if there are people listening to this there might be people uh autistic people listening to this who are thinking about going to relax screenings or there may well be other um people who who are responsible for creating relax screenings in various venues so i guess um let's talk a little bit about um i suppose our hopes for where we're going to go with all of this um how this might develop in the future and um yeah what, what do we think is the the, the the correct direction for relaxed screenings or anything else that we could be doing better at this stage whether either of you've got any ideas or thoughts on that i think for me i would eventually and i know this is perhaps um optimistic i've where i'm from uh, I remember one of our the, sort of the main sort of art house cinema we had adopting sort of relaxed screenings, and it was especially Alzheimer friendly screenings mm. long, long ago. This would be about 2014, 2015. But from what I can tell at the moment, it solely is art house cinemas and repertory houses like the BFI and Cinematex doing this sort of very useful and very important service. My hope personally is that it will get to a point where it's a regular part not only of these uh these sort of cinemas which while wonderful sometimes people might not have access to around the country mm. become part of mainstream programming yeah and that's that's picture house that's city world that's view that's odeon that's whatever and people take the model inspired by what maggie has done and 
develop it in new ways that are appropriate for those atmospheres. Whether they already exist, I don't know. I'm perfectly willing to be proven uh, people to go, yeah, Ethan, it, it already exists. <laughs> but in that case, I say it needs to be done more and it needs to be, become more regular because autistic people make up a, not a significant part, but we make up a sizable part mm. of the populace. We are a number of paying customers, and if we like, and we we want to go to the cinema, we want to see films. And currently, I think for a number of us, staying home and watching them on a screen, which is less stressful, uh, is preferable. But if I think cinema chains are willing to experiment with the notion of it, it may be a very very positive. And inclusive move yeah. as well, because inclusivity is vitally important here. That that would be that's my ultimate aim. And as for the BFI doing it, I'm hoping that A, it becomes a permanent fixture, B, it becomes more integrated into the uh, various seasons that appear uh, along the period, and C, it continues to provide for autistic thinkers, writers, creators a platform from which they can address their autistic peers and neuro and indeed neurotypical individuals with their own interpretations of films and to open up conversations and to create a, a wider community that's what i would like those are some lovely aspirations ethan anything anything from you man what ethan says um <laughs> oh, that's that's good to know that's good to know. i think um Pre-pandemic, there were a number of chains who were working with relaxed screenings um, for autistic communities, and that really was obviously stopped while cinemas were closed, but very slow to reopen in some spaces. Mm. I'm not sure whether um, all chains are back to the level that they were at before, but I do know whilst it was a very slow start, Sometimes very specifically because of outreach indicating that the audience wasn't ready yet um, from their point of view. Right. And I'm part of a working group conversation, which includes those chains that um, I know in the initial stages hadn't restarted because um, their messaging said that that this community wasn't ready. Um, I would hope by now we're in a situation where people have um, been able to recover that momentum that was was strong before and some of the chains were in fact doing really good training programs with their staff which is another area that we haven't really covered but is actually is part of the wider environment um dynamic that they had started yeah. and it was something that bfi was doing not just looking at the curation space but actually looking at the whole environmental space about when you walk into when you walk in through the door how does that feel and perhaps this is more uh, of an issue in a potentially busy multiplex with six screens going in and and popcorn and music, which we don't have mm. um, at BFI in the same way. And so the, the, the complexity of sensory experience there mm. can in itself be an obstacle to, to going the next stage towards buying the ticket. But I think the awareness level, even if the full restart capacity is raising again, um, and there are certainly conversations going in there, which are, um, I think, the positive move forward. Going back to the BFI space, I mean, the, the integration within 
our main programme of the right spaces and not only having them in a, uh, in a, in a labelled relaxed screening cycle, we've got a commitment to one a month at the moment in a regular slot, uh, regular part of the week, regular time of day, give or take, you know, half an hour. And it would be nice to see how the dialogue and the things that Ethan was referring to in terms of um, people sharing their perspectives um, isn't only within that relaxed space, but is actually part of our wider programme. So that consciousness and that um, perspective can actually be shared right across our programming in different ways, not always giving a relaxed environment, but giving um, uh, a neurodiverse perspective on a certain area of cinema, which will bring it into our wider consciousness of how we program across the time. And I, I'm talking about BFI South Bank as, as a seven days a week operational cinema, BFI, um, as you know, and I know people listening to this know, BFI is a festival space, London Film Festival, Flair Festival, mm. Future Film Festival. Each of them have been doing different approaches into making some of their experiences, if not fully relaxed, more accessible and that conversation is very live um future film festival in particular was doing a lot of work in that area with young people um making sure that their experience of their first film festivals was a positive one and we've also got player um and our dvd spaces and whilst yeah. they're not um containable screening spaces we're talking about our mm. offer of cinema to the public so we're talking about titling um which can be something where there's a big debate as to whether that should be part of a relaxed screening um experience or not we haven't touched on that so the more doors we open the more conversations we have the more people we have involved uh and that big conversational space to me it's it just benefits from growing about learning about more about each other's experience seeing more people represented on the screens, which will then have that effect of yeah. seeing more people on the screens represented from the autistic community, which will then bring in more people to see. I mean, these things are uh, raise the debate, raise the conversations, uh, the writers who are out there who are putting forward the neurodiverse perspectives um, are really important to this. I think that they're writing those stories which will appeal to, as well as the interpretation of classics, like we were talking with Wild Child, with um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, we had Kes a couple of weeks ago. The textures of our cinema lexicon are huge uh, and, and offer themselves for debate and discussion in that way, which I hope will continue. Absolutely. Great stuff. Yes, um, thank you very much. That was that's uh, really interesting. Um, and uh, hopefully this has been a, a, a fruitful conversation for people listening. I would also say for people listening, actually, that if you have any um, thoughts on this or your own experiences or your own sort of input or advice, perhaps, um, you, you can get in touch with us. Do let us, uh, I mean, we're on Twitter, it's uh, at Autism Cinema, or you can email us on the cinema autism 
at gmail.com. And that's the cinema autism with just one A in the middle. So the shared A in the middle of the word. Um, yeah, do send us a message. We'd be really interested to read about your experiences of relaxed screenings or any thoughts that you might have. Just before we uh, wrap up, Ethan, will you remind us the dates again of the screenings that are happening? Because hopefully we'll get this episode out in, in time. Yes, of course. So for anyone interested in coming, the first screening will be on Halloween night itself. That's Monday, the 31st of October in NFT3. And that will start at 10 past six. And that is for Pontypool. And you can find the links for this online at the BFI South Bank. If you type in BFI South Bank and click on to their What's On page, you can access it there. And for the fly, which we will probably put a reminder about uh, sooner to the date, that's on the 28th of November at six o'clock also in NFT3. And uh, we hope to see a couple of you there if you are available. And each of those screenings will be introduced by Ethan, whether or not he wears a suit, <laughs> as previously <laughs> discussed. <laughs> um, but also importantly, there will be a discussion afterwards. And that to me is really part of what we're offering in this series is not only the chance to see a film, but also to discuss it afterwards. So very much hope that those of you who are attending We'll be able to join us in the blue room afterwards for 45 minutes an hour of discussion around the film that's just been seen um hosted by ethan Absolutely. prompted by his thoughts and prompted by the thoughts of the audience sitting there so um a really important part of how we are looking to develop this series is talking about the films wonderful what more could you ask for that's that's brilliant um lovely stuff okay well we'll wrap things up there then um so thank you very much once again ethan for joining us and for your thoughts it's my pleasure and special thank you to maggie for joining us for uh, spending some time with us this morning i think this has been a really valuable conversation so thank you so much for coming thank you for inviting me i've enjoyed it thank you for having us no problem okay uh yeah we'll be back again hopefully in another couple of weeks with another episode um but in the meantime thank you and goodbye you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.